Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning and happy October. This is probably my favorite month of the year. I don't know about you. I particularly like how the falling leaves, the trees being stripped bare of all they wear, provide a contrast for the internal changelessness of our God. I'm Chip Webb, and I'm a member here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Before I begin, let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all your people's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On Monday, I was walking our dog, Ellie, when Fairfax County Public Schools was observing Yom Kippur. I saw two children outside, perhaps somewhere between 8 and 10 years old. One was yelling after the other one, come back. The other one replied, between tears, no, you hurt me. The first one incredulously asked, aren't you going to come back and play? No, the second one shouted, I'm going away and not coming back. You hurt me. The emotionally and perhaps physically wounded boy ran down, the, ran down to the path that leads into the nearby meadow, where, while the other boy walked back up to his house. When I got closer to the house, I saw more kids come outside and start playing. And from a distance, I saw the hurt boy crying alone, obstructed from the other kids' view by a wall. I started formulating in my head what I might say to him when I passed him. But as Ellie and I approached the meadow path, I think it was a third kid who came from the house, walked down to the path, and reached out to the hurt one with an invitation. The two of them walked back toward the house together as Ellie and I started the descent into the meadow. I was relieved to see that the injured boy no longer was crying. Pain apparently had been alleviated by grace in the form of an olive branch extended by a mediator to the offended party. Well, we probably all had similar experiences in our childhood. And let's be honest, we've probably also had them as adults. For if the relationship between childhood friends can be thorny, how much more can relationships between adult children and their parents, particularly when the children have reached adulthood and had time to either some, somewhat process past wounds or experience, new, or experience new hurts arising from continuing life experiences with their parents? In our Old Testament passage for today, we see the people of Israel during the prophet Ezekiel's day criticizing previous generations for causing hurt to them and complaining to God about the way he judges them given those perceived circumstances. Now let's step back and get a bit of context because without a proper understanding of the situation, we might misinterpret the pro- the pa- this passage. 
The nation of Israel had centuries earlier been divided into two kingdoms, the northern one of Israel and the southern one of Judah. The northern kingdom had been conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom had been attacked by the Babylonians beginning in 605 BC. Then Jerusalem its center was captured in 597 BC. Ezekiel was a priest in the temple who was sent into exile in Babylonia at that time, where he joined a community of other exiles. Four years later, in 593 BC, Ezekiel was called by God to become a prophet. According to the timeline assembled by the late Anglican Bishop John Taylor in his commentary on Ezekiel, this word of the Lord in Ezekiel 18 that Ezekiel received perhaps dates to about one or two years later in, say, 592 or 591 B.C. Now, our passage starts by saying, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean? Now, let me stop there for just a second. We might think that God is specifically addressing Ezekiel here as the you, but the word you instead is plural. A textual note in the English Standard Version and other Bible translations tells us that. So, God is through Ezekiel addressing the Israelites. And we next read of a proverb that the Israelites were quoting. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, it's not clear how old this proverb was, but the exiles were using it to essentially say that previous generations had sinned and that the current generation was suffering in exile because of their forefathers' sins. In other words, they were implicitly saying, God, you are punishing us. You have sent us into exile for the sins of our parents and previous generations. That is unfair. And the us seen as being punished applied to both each person as an individual and to the nation as a corporate whole. After all, God had called the nation of Israel out of Egypt as a people for his own possession, had entered into a covenant with them, and established them, and had set them to be a light to the other nations. How could God be just now, be just now, excuse me, after the nation's division into two kingdoms, and after both nations had been conquered by invaders, and much of the southern kingdom's population had been taken into exile? So we have two points of pain here, one of a tension between the current generation and previous ones, and another possibly greater distrust of God. In just five or six years, Jerusalem would be totally destroyed by the Babylonians and the anguish experienced by the nation, particularly those remaining in the desolate wastes of Jerusalem, would be greater, much greater. There is an entire book in the Old Testament, Lamentations, that details their desolation. But the laments of the exile, of, the, of, of, the, of those in exile, were significant enough now. And it is into this pain between parents and children and between God and his beloved Israel that God speaks. And through what he says, we can see several points where God calls us to be a common people undergoing uncommon transformation, as our tagline here at Corpus Christi says. Number one, realize both whose and who you are. In verse four, God says, behold, 
all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now, the Hebrew word for soul, according to Bishop Taylor, represents the totality of the human being. All of us, all that we are, is God's. Our life, our breath each second of the day, whether we continue to exist from moment to moment, comes from our Creator. And that love, it is, excuse me, um, it is out of God's love that we were created and that we continue to exist. And that love, quote, demands our lives, our souls, our lives, our all. To quote Isaac Watts' hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We saw this in our gospel reading today. In Jesus' parable, God, our Heavenly Father, has two sons. One of whom says that he will not do the Father's work, but later does. And one who says he will do the Father's work, but does not. One message of the parable is that what we do with our lives and whether we will do the work that God desires us to do are of critical importance. Why? No other reason is needed than that we belong to God. But we also need to know who we are. Returning to verse 4, God says that all souls are mine, the soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son is mine, the soul whose sin shall die. Those in exile had contrasted themselves with their parents and previous generations, suggesting that only the sins of those who had gone before had mattered. Here, God levels the playing field. Both the Father and the Son belong to God. Ancestors and descendants alike belong to him, and the soul that sins will die. Now, which soul sins? Every soul. We should not fool ourselves into thinking that we do not sin, if that is a temptation, or that we do not sin as much as other people. Only we know our own hearts and the depth of sinfulness within them, and we do not know other people beyond either external appearance or what they choose to reveal to us. We might not be tempted to blame prior generational sins for our misfortunes as the Israelites did. Nevertheless, we still might compare our own tendencies to sins with those of others and feel either a certain amount of pride or dismay as a result. That's a trap. Instead, we should just be concerned with our own missing the mark, our failing to do what God desires for us to do. We are sinners like every other human being. However, like every other human being, we are created in the image of God and ultimately belong to him. Knowing both whose we are and who we are means as well that we need to maintain a right perspective concerning both God and ourselves. Verse 25 points to this when God asks Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? And that's repeated in verse 29. Those in exile doubted God's justness and thus possibly a host of his other characteristics. His goodness, his love, his omniscience. But God is the one without sin and we are the ones who are sinful. We are the ones who are sick. 
and we need a cure. The Christian faith says that God has provided this in his goodness and mercy through the offering of his son Jesus for the sins of the world. Far from visiting the sins of the fathers upon the children, God instead proclaims in Ezekiel 18 that he looks at each person individually and does not delight in the death of anyone. The primary proof of that assertion came in Jesus Christ. God's justice, love, mercy, and grace overflow in Christ Jesus. So we need to be intimately knowledgeable of God's character. And, the, and we need to have the humility to know that we are not God and that we need his aid. So number one, know whose we are and who we are. Number two, turn from sin and follow the ways of God. In verse 30, God says to Israel, repent and turn from all your transgressions. And in verses 26 through 28, God contrasts two ways of life. We'll call them the way of righteousness and the way of wickedness, using some of the terminology there. And those words agree, righteousness and wickedness, agree with similar imagery in Psalm 1 and in later Christian imagery such as the, later Christian uh, writings such as the Didache. And as in the other writings, the way of righteousness or its equivalent is associated with life and the way of wickedness or its equivalent is associated with death. The way of righteousness involves following God's commands, while the way of wickedness or iniquity involves pursuing sinful desires. And if you read back in some of the sections of chapter uh, 18 that that was not in the lectionary, you'll see some of them listed. Parents and their children are judged equally based upon the type of life they lead. Note that to the Israels, Israelites, excuse me, life and death would have included not just those actual states, but prosperity on the one hand and detriment or want on the other. Now, God's command here to repent and turn from all of your transgressions is echoed and one might say fulfilled in the call of Jesus to repent and believe in the gospel at the start of his ministry. See Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And in our gospel reading parable today, we find out that it is the tax collectors and prostitutes, perhaps the most unlikeliest of people from a first century Jewish perspective, who will enter the kingdom of heaven before the religious leaders, because they have obeyed the call to repentance, whereas the religious leaders have not done so yet. Now, this parable in our gospel reading illustrates how the opportunity to repent is open to every human being. For some, that might mean an initial turning from living with little consideration of God to seeking forgiveness from God and starting down the path of walking with Christ. Now, this is a very serious matter. Our prayer book's occasional prayer, number 64, for the unrepentant, says, says, ask that God, quote, awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Grant them to know that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home and number them among your children that they may be yours forever. And if anyone here has never turned to Jesus Christ for salvation, I would urge you to talk to Father Morgan or another member of the clergy here. 
you can become a member of the family of God. And for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, repentance means dealing with any besetting sins we have by confessing them regularly. Our Sunday liturgy helps us here by including a confession of sin. And we have a reconciliation of a penitent, of a penitent right in our prayer book for confessions for the priest. Father Morgan is available for confessions by appointment. Whatever, wherever excuse me, we are in our journey with Christ, confession of sin, whether privately to God in personal prayer, corporately during Sunday worship, or with a priest via the reconciliation of penitent right, is a regular part of the Christian life. But then the question might arise, is the Christian life, at least in part, an endless series of asking for forgiveness and trying to do better than falling again? If we're on the way of righteousness, can we ever, be true, can we ever truly be righteous? That's in large part where our mediator, Jesus, comes in. He has walked the way of righteousness perfectly for us and has been exalted as a result, as described in our epistle reading, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And over time, as we follow Christ, we are being made more into his image, as Romans 8 tells us. It's a long, lifelong process. But it is a process with a certain outcome. And in the meantime, our failings, our sins, don't catch off God off guard or surprise him. And Jesus, our high priest, sympathizes with our our weaknesses, according to the book of Hebrews. So number one, know whose and who you are. Number two, repent, turn from sin and follow the ways of God. And number three, make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. We find that in verse 30 of Ezekiel chapter 18. Now, in other places, both Ezekiel and the prophet Jeremiah communicate this not as a command, but as a promise that God will give Israel a new heart and a new spirit. Christians tend to see this fulfilled as God in God granting spiritual rebirth and the Holy Spirit to a new convert in the faith, someone who has turned to Jesus for salvation. These are acts of God. But for those of us who are Christians, there is also a certain sense in which we play a part in making ourselves a new heart and a new spirit, as Ezekiel says. The Apostle Paul called it working out your salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Part of doing so involves adopting and changing over time to fit the needs of the moment different spiritual devotional practices. Along that line, our newly formed fall formation groups focus on evening prayer from our Book of Common Prayer. We are learning how to use the prayer book regularly for devotional and communal prayer. There might still be space available to join one of the groups if you haven't already. Now beyond this, being part of a church and being regularly in fellowship with other Christians is necessary for making a new heart and a new spirit. There are a variety of ways to be involved here at Corpus Christi. Talk with a regular attendee here, one of our clergy, or sign up for the Corpus Christi email list and watch for the midweek announcements each week. So our passage in Ezekiel invites us to know both whose and whose we are and who we are, turn from sin and follow the ways from and follow the ways of God, and make a new heart and a new spirit for ourselves by working out our salvation in fear and trembling. But there's another ingredient of the passage that's not directly mentioned and bears examination. For all of the talk about earthly parents and children in Ezekiel 18, there's also a heavenly father present, God himself 
as we saw in our gospel reading. The one who speaks to Israel about their need to turn from wickedness to righteousness and matters of life and death is not only their judge, which he is, and he will be the judge of us all, but their father. And the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 shows us that when a child leaves the family home and moves to a far country for a life of wickedness, but later decides to return home, that father runs to meet, embraces, and prepares a feast for him or her. That is the goodness of our God, who welcomes us not just as people who are justified through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, as if we are on trial in a courtroom, but envelops us in the biggest family that anyone could imagine, the communion of saints in heaven and on earth. And so returning to my story about the hurt kid, it apparently took a mediator to heal a vexing situation. And we have a God who justified and justifies us by providing a mediator for all of us in his son, Jesus Christ, who sets us on the path of righteousness in becoming more like Jesus over a lifetime of sanctification and who places us in the largest, most loving family imaginable for all of eternity. Maybe some of us here need to return to our Heavenly Father in some fashion. If so, in the words of the late singer-songwriter Rich Mullins, well, we are children no more. We have sinned and grown old, but our Father still waits, and he watches down the road to see the crying boys come running back in his arms and be growing young, growing young. Let's cast off our sin by God's grace, walk in the way of righteousness, and grow young together along this earthly sojourn. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.